that you would speak. And we must pray this because apart from your Spirit's help, sinners like us won't hear from you. But that's our desire right now, and that's our need, so we ask for it. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. How would you describe who you are? We're taught to look inside ourselves to answer that question, to define the world around us by what we feel, and so not let the world tell us who we are. But we really can't change the world around us, in part because of things like the laws of nature, but also because it's full of individuals all trying to make the world conform to their own individuality. So to change this kind of world would be godlike, and that's not who we are. God's the only one who's truly self-sufficient, self-sustaining. And therefore, he's the only being in the universe who can truly define himself by looking nowhere else outside of himself. He is who he is. Which means the best way to define ourselves is to start with who he is and our relationship to him. In the end, what does it mean for us if we, are, if we see ourselves differently than God sees us? Or if we see him differently than he actually is? John chapter 20 verse 38 tells us that the gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. And our passage today helps us to look to him before we look to ourselves or to anyone else to find life. So, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 18. John chapter 1, verse 18, and if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters, the smaller numbers are the verses. This morning we're looking at verses 19 through 28, and I didn't get the page number. Anybody? 941, if you're looking for that. 941. Last week we covered the prologue, the prologue of the, the Gospel of John, in which we see that Jesus is God our Creator. Life and light in the flesh. That's who Jesus is. Now we come to John the Baptist. And he's asked, who are you? Who are you? And he answers by pointing back to Jesus. And here's what we need to do with that answer. Focus on Jesus or risk seeking life in something less than Jesus. That's the main thing that we want to learn and take away from this passage today. Focus on Jesus or risk seeking life in something or someone Less than Jesus. And the text is going to help us focus on Jesus if we ask two questions. First, what are you really looking for? What are you really looking for? And we're going to ask that in verses 19 through 23. 
And second, who's it really all about? We're going to ask that in verses 24 through 28. Who's it really all about? So you think about who you are and what you might be seeking out of life or where you're looking for life. We want to focus on Jesus. And text is going to help us do that if we'll ask, what are you really looking for and who's it really about? So first, what are you really looking for? Look at chapter 1, verse 19. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, Are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. The introduction to John here really isn't much of an introduction. All we're told about him is that he's a witness. But he isn't just any witness. In fact, the the author of this gospel, which is also named John, assumes that every reader already knows about John the Baptist which I think is a mark of authenticity here. The fact that John's readers need no introduction to John suggests that this is a very early date for this gospel. Uh, So, for example, just down the street is a huge monument of Thomas Doyle. You know know who Thomas Doyle is? Me neither. (laughs) I, I I can't tell you anything about him. But I'm sure everyone around here within a decade of his death knew who Thomas Doyle was, because he's got a big monument. Well, we need an introduction to Thomas Doyle, but not in his lifetime, and so it is with John the Baptist. This is, this is written very early. We've got a very early eyewitness account of Jesus' life and this very important testimony, this very significant figure in the first century. Now, what about him was so significant? What's so important about his testimony that made him so popular. Well, it could be that his birth was no secret. Uh, John the Baptist had a very old father and mother, and his mother was barren. And they had him after his father had a supernatural encounter with an angel that left him, left him unable to speak all the way up until the day of John's birth. That was all a very public event. So when John grows up, and he looks and speaks like a prophet, well, the masses believe he's a prophet. Throngs of people from all over the Jerusalem are flocking to the desert to hear this grown-up John preach. Even Herod, the king in Jerusalem, is requesting John's presence. So just think about it. Put yourself there. Israel has a very rich history of prophets who literally shaped their history. But it's been over 400 years since God had spoken through a prophet. And now, all of a sudden, out in the desert, the the traditional meeting place between God and his prophets, comes this radical prophetic ministry from someone who had a kind of supernatural birth. John looks like a big deal. So people are flocking to hear him. And the religious leaders want to know, who are you? Verse 20, he didn't refuse to answer, but declared, I am not the Messiah. 
John isn't trying to hide his identity. But because he knows what's at stake here, he's more interested in declaring clearly who he's not. In the original language, the construction of the sentence is an emphatic denial. I am not the Christ. Meaning, John's not the promised king that God said would come and deliver his people. And that's who many people in John's day were looking for. But then the question is why? What were they really looking for? Well, think about their life situation. They're living under the control of the Roman Empire, and some imposter king is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. So the Jews were longing for this expected Messiah to appear and conquer like David. They're looking for someone to restore Israel as a nation to great dominance and national prosperity. And so had John said, yes, I am the Christ, well, immediately the Maccabean flags would have been raised, people would have organized, and they would have prepared to fight for their deliverance. Now, people were right to be looking for the Messiah. God had promised a future delivering king. But people, like ourselves, are way too focused on building our own kingdoms in this world. We're way too focused on our life situation. And so we really don't know what we're looking for in a Messiah or a Savior. And John isn't pretending to be anybody's savior. And he isn't letting anyone think of him that way. But obviously, something about John made the crowds believe he could be the one. And the same thing happens today in a different way. The human heart, which desires a better life than this fallen world of sin can give us, has us all readily looking for saviors. It might be a politician or a whole government. And you can witness the religious fervor today in our political parties. But it might not be a political thing at all. The Savior could easily be a romantic partner or marriage. People put pressure on relationships to fill all their needs and desires. And no person can meet them all. Not as fellow sinners. Or that Savior might even be a pastor or counselor. And pastors and counselors can struggle with having some kind of Savior complex. You know, just turn on a a church TV service or walk into the religious section of, of a bookstore. And most likely, the gospel message about Jesus Christ is just a means to getting what you think you really want. So it could be political, relational, or a financial savior. But in some form, it's probably of this world and immediate if you're not focused on Jesus. But Jesus' kingdom isn't of this world. His kingdom isn't yet here in full. So he didn't come to establish a new political party or even a new Christian nation. If he did, he said himself that his disciples would fight. But they didn't. Jesus came to satisfy our greatest desires not found in this world. He came to meet our greatest needs. 
He came to save us from our sin, Satan, and death. In other words, he came to save us from God's judgment. Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf, and on the cross, he took on our sins so that God poured out the judgment that we deserve on him. And by putting your faith in him and repenting of your sins, you can have the promise of eternal life with God and live forever in his kingdom. Because Jesus didn't just die, but he was raised to life. And right now, he reigns over all creation. But you'll miss out on Jesus and his salvation if you don't know yourself as a real sinner in light of who God is. I love the humility of John in this passage. He knows who he is. So he doesn't try to be what he's not. And he's not the Christ. And put so emphatically, they move on. Verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? And that's actually a very good question. Because based on Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, people weren't just looking for a Messiah at this time, but his forerunner, Elijah. Elijah was said that he would come and prepare the way for God's coming. They expected him to show up before the great day of the Lord and preach a message of repentance. And John actually looks the part. He lives a rugged lifestyle like Elijah, and he has a powerful message like Elijah. He's calling people to turn back to the Lord. So they ask, are you Elijah? Another straightforward answer, no, he's not. And that actually presents a small problem for us. Because Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, and Mark 9, 35, that John is the Elijah that Malachi predicted would come. The angel Gabriel even tells John's father, Zechariah, that the son born to him would preach in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then he quotes the prophecy in Malachi 4, 5 about John the Baptist. Now certainly, John would have heard the story about his birth. So why does he say he's not Elijah? Well, because he's not. Not literally. And John doesn't want anyone to be confused by that. After all, Elijah never died. And so people were looking for his his return. So John can answer truthfully, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm John. And yet he is the Elijah God said would come and prepare the way. And in that sense, based on the forerunner language in verses 23 and 27, I think John does understand himself to be the Elijah that Scripture predicts. He's using forerunner language about himself from Isaiah 40, which we'll look at in a minute, to say, I'm that guy. But as we'll see, anything about him that would be a distraction from Jesus would actually be a misunderstanding of who John is. He so closely understands who he is in light of Jesus that just a a misunderstanding of who he is would be a risk of missing out on Jesus. And so having heard he's not Elijah, they move on. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. And notice they don't ask, are you a prophet? People believe that. But are you the prophet? 
It's a reference to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses predicted that God would raise up another prophet greater than him. Now, Israel had many prophets, like we said. But Moses was special because in his role as a prophet, he was also a mediator. Moses was a key figure for forming the relationship between God and his people. He he went to God on behalf of his people, and he received the law that he then gave to his people by which they could find life with God. And so when Moses says, one greater than me is coming, people greatly anticipated a greater prophet than Moses. But that's not John. So verse 22, who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? Verse 23, he said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way, way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. You can almost hear the frustration in their voices there, can't you? It's almost like they've got John in some interrogation cell, and they can't break him. Are you this? Are you that? Who are you then? I mean, they're just desperate for an answer. We need something. And John's answer is so instructive. Again, John finds his identity in what God says about him. And we should too, actually. You should know who you are. That should be how you begin to answer that question, who you are, in light of what your Creator says about you in His Word. You're created in His image. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ, an adopted child. Now, in John's case, he has a unique role. Uh, Something more is said about him. him. He's, He's a voice. Specifically, the voice mentioned in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. There, in Isaiah, Isaiah is looking into the future after Israel has been sent into exile for rebelling against God. And a herald proclaims good news of comfort to them while they're there. He says that the time of suffering is ending and they're coming back home. And God himself will lead them like a king in a royal procession, just like he did out of Egypt. And later, Isaiah speaks of God's coming servant who will accomplish this salvation for his people. The Messiah is going to bring about this new exodus, and and God's glory will be revealed in both salvation and judgment when he comes. But still, though that's happening, God's going to do it, the people must be ready. And that requires, obviously, preparation. How? How? Well, by repenting of the very things that led them into exile. They're called to return to the Lord and bear fruit that's consistent with living as God's people. And it's this voice crying out in the wilderness saying, prepare the way. In other words, get ready. And John is the ultimate fulfillment of that voice. That's who he is. And he's also literally in the wilderness, speaking as a prophet, calling people to repentance. The other Gospels tell us the content of John's message and ministry. It's very simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's coming. So can you see what John's doing here with these religious leaders? He's turning the focus away from himself as the messenger onto the message of God's salvation and judgment. 
that will be fulfilled in the Messiah. So to answer their question, who are you? John turns to God's word and says, I'm a voice. It's an incredibly humble answer. He's of no real importance as the speaker. He doesn't worry about rightly speaking of his identity as a spiritual Elijah or even talk about himself as the forerunner, though both those things would have been right. It's all about the message so that you focus on the Lord. He's a voice. That's all. The Lord is coming. So if they remain focused on John, they're going to miss out on finding life in Jesus. That's the risk of every human heart. Just imagine with me a people living in a very remote part of the world, cut off from the rest of civilization, with no road system in or out. Longing to be connected to the prosperity of the rest of the world, one day this guy shows up and he's building a road. A man's out in the desert, connecting them to the capital city. And so everyone goes out to him, marveling at his road, praising him for his work, ready to get behind him in whatever he does or says. And so the crowds of people, including the leaders of their remote city, want to know, who are you? I mean, this guy's finally giving them a road, so they're really ready to celebrate him. And the man says, I'm just a road worker. I'm preparing the highway for the king who's coming to be with you. Why are you so excited about the road and focusing on me? I'm just a road worker. He's the king and he's coming. Will you be ready? That's John's ministry. And that's why the world needed it. That's why we need it. Because we can be so distracted and easily start focusing on the thing that's being done or the person who's doing it and missing what it's all about. Life is in Jesus. And I think John is such a great model for evangelism here. I mean, given his ministry work, he could have easily rolled with the attention. You know, maybe sign a book contract, write about sincere devotion or, or godly discipline. He could have walked among the influential and had an audience with the king. It could have easily been about him, and he could have justified it. If he was looking for his reward on earth. That's the one thing. And he's not. He's a voice. That's the humility with which the church should live and the humility with which you and I should speak. But far too often we're distracted by the things of this world and the people who have things in this world and what they can do for us. And so we're too worried about what we will look like when we share the gospel or what they might think about us as Christians and we can't handle their rejection. We want the world to like us to appreciate the church and what it does for society, and we would like to hear about it. Well, I think that heart and mindset keeps a lot of people quiet and discontent. Just make it about Jesus, 
And you'll be more faithful to speak and more thankful with your status as a child of God. You know Christ. You have salvation. Life with God and His kingdom should be our greatest desire. And so it's Jesus that we should be really focused on. That's what our lives should really be about. Which brings us to the second question to help us focus on Jesus and not risk missing out on Him for something less. Who is life? Who is it really all about? Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. We're told now that these priests and Levites from verse 19 were sent by the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were your model citizens. They're the ones that everybody looks up to because of how seriously they took their religion. Okay, we would not have disliked them. We would have looked up to them. And therefore, they held very powerful and influential positions in the Jewish community, which they enjoyed. And it brought them into close contact with the Roman authorities. In fact, life under Rome wasn't so bad with all its success. And the Pharisees know that any disturbance among the Jews will be strongly met with Roman force, as it always had been in the past. So, depending on who John is and what he plans to do, potentially poses a major threat to them. So they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? This is where their real problem with John comes from. It's his baptism. His baptism of repentance towards God assumes some sort of independent religious authority, which must mean he's either the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, because you can't just do that. The religious leaders obviously have got a problem with this, since they're operating by a different authority especially when it's fellow Jews in good standing with the local synagogue that are being baptized. They might even find this offensive because baptism at this point had become a practice among the Jews as a cleansing ritual for Gentiles. For Gentiles. That's, that's non-Jews. Because Gentiles were considered unclean and they needed to go through a purification rite to be welcomed into the community of God's people. So, baptism was the public act of turning away from worshiping the false gods of the nations to worshiping the true God of Israel. But here's John in the wilderness declaring to Jews, you need to be baptized. In other words, John's preaching, you, the people of Israel, are also unclean. And the Messiah is on his way. So, repent and be ready for his coming. So not only is his ministry just confusing to these religious leaders, but yes, it is in fact also offensive to them. You can see why they're so interested in figuring out who this guy is. Whatever John's doing sounds like a threat to these self-proclaimed guardians of religious life among God's people. 
Now, in many ways, they are the bad guys in the Gospels. But I don't want us to be too harsh with them in such a way that we would separate ourselves from them. I mean, we like to think that we are not Pharisees and we don't like Pharisees. Um, Everybody kind of has that sort of high, optimistic view of themselves today, right? But every tribe finds their good leaders who may not actually be good or right, even when they have good intentions. And everybody can easily step into that role when we think that we're right and what we know is best for others, especially if we already hold that influence. And it seems to me that the rise of the influencer on social media and the passionate feelings around our political leaders and the moral stances that corporate America feels like they are mandated to take and enforce is actually producing a whole culture of Pharisees. I think we're more Pharisaical than ever, maybe, because it just seems to me at this present time. (laughs) We can be just like this. So once again, I think John's such a humble example of what we want to be. First of all, he just humbly lives and speaks from God's Word. And secondly, he doesn't make it about himself, but points to Jesus. His baptizing ministry is part of the preparation for someone greater. The ministry that's giving him all the attention isn't about him. So in verse 26, he replies, I baptize with water. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He's the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. So John's baptism, which they're so troubled by, isn't as big of a deal as what's coming next. In fact, that someone who's coming next is already here. But you don't know him, he says. And given what John just said about himself in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, that someone isn't just someone, but the Messiah. It's God. And these religious leaders are missing out on the, on the Messiah because they're focused on John. And that's ultimately because they're focused on themselves. So the Messiah is already among you, but you don't see him. Now, that's a religious people missing out on Jesus. Ultimately, because of the condition of their hearts. By the time Jesus shows up, Israel was in a spiritually wretched state. Not because they were so immoral. They were extremely moral. But they were far from the heart of God's law. And so they were far from God in their own hearts. They had a religious system made up by men with rules and regulations that would determine an appearance of righteousness, drawing attention to themselves in their righteousness and enjoying the praise of other people. But inwardly, they were spiritually dead. Which means you can be here every Sunday and still miss out on Jesus. If you're here, focus on yourself. True worship requires true humility. So are you here this morning to get God and to give glory to God? Or do you come expecting to get from God what you want for your life?
A pastor must work hard at rightly exposing the truth of God's word, but the attitude of the sheep determines the appetite. Make Sunday about God, not about you, or you will miss out on Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're we're really glad you're here, and we don't want you to miss out on Christ. I often tell people that I invite here that I don't expect anyone to agree with everything that I preach. But at least you'll know what the Bible says. We, we want you to know what, what God has said in his word. And since that's the case, I just want to encourage you not to miss out on Jesus because the message doesn't align with you. Or maybe because there's something about me that's just not great. I'd understand that. But we don't want you to miss out on Jesus. As people, we can be wrongly offended by what we shouldn't. Like the church's message about sin and our need to repent and put our faith in Jesus. We can be offended by those things, but that's actually good news. Like like John's message that these religious leaders are rejecting, all because they personally can't overcome the implications of John's baptizing ministry for them. And so what he does here should be a great service to them. He doesn't answer their challenge by leaning on the legitimate authority that God's given him. He could have, right? He, he totally could have, have launched into a theological argument, you know, and just set their thinking straight. That's an obvious strategy between different camps today. And sometimes it's necessary in order to see Jesus rightly. Many times, though, it can also be a distraction for us, as we're often tempted to feel righteous based on our beliefs alone and ignore what's actually in our hearts. So John doesn't argue about his authority. He simply focuses their attention on the one he bears witness to. John's the target. They're coming at him. They challenge him with a question, and he just moves the target. Eyes off me and my ministry. Let's focus on Christ. That's who your your real problem is with. Again, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I, I hope you'll let us do that with you. I know that Twitter and others would love for us to fight about the issues that we disagree on. And it's not that I don't think either one of us think that those issues aren't important. They they probably are. But if you come here, I would just rather focus on the conversation about Jesus and who he is. And then I think that will actually help us talk about those other issues we disagree on. And I would invite that. But let's focus on Jesus. Come back each week to to hear about his, his life in the Gospel of John. I think that will help us have a conversation about all the things that we disagree on. And church, I really could make the same application to us in our life together. If a love for Christ and his glory is supreme, well then the things in our statement of faith will be the things that we say we must agree on. And all those other important things that we disagree on won't keep us from being distracted from Christ. Those things will become discipleship issues that we can patiently bear with one another on so that over time we find ourselves all heading in the same direction. But to get there, Christ and his glory must be the focus of our own hearts. The focus of the people in these verses is obviously very much on John. But the point of these verses, from the author's standpoint, is to move the focus from John... To Christ. 
That's what the author is doing here. And that's what we'll see happen next week. And that's what, we ought, what ought to be our aim as Christians as well. Okay, if, if you're living a life that's focused on Christ, then like John, others might be tempted to focus on you. Maybe to attack you. Maybe to praise you. Maybe to look up to you. Even follow you. And that becomes a great temptation to either defend yourself if they're attacking you or to take the glory if they're praising you and to enjoy the the fleeting praise and influence of people. But as Christians, we're called to shift the focus and and transfer the glory to Christ. So it could be as simple as as hearing a compliment and saying, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That doesn't mean that you can't say thank you first, especially if, if that, that person is meaning to encourage you. That's a good thing. Receive the encouragement. But then give praise to where it's due. Shift to God's grace in Christ. Introducing our, our friends to the rest of the church body is really helpful for this. You know, because your friends might think that you're great because of who you are. You know, All the great things about you are because of you. But when they see a whole group of people who live and love like you do, and the only thing that you have in common with those people is Jesus, well, then they're forced to shift their attention to Jesus. And I hope that as people get to know us as a church, they'll be sort of confused by what they're seeing. Let's just confound them with grace. John does this really well because he has a profound understanding of who he is in light of who God is, and it makes him profoundly humble. You can see that at the end of verse 27. A disciple of a Jewish rabbi or teacher not only followed them around and learned from all their lessons, but they also took on a role of a servant with them. Practically speaking, a disciple looked like a personal slave, just taking care of all the needs of their teacher, right down to the most menial tasks. The one task, however, that separated a disciple from a slave would be that a disciple would never deal with the feet of their teacher. For example, they'd never take care of the teacher's sandals because feet were especially nasty in John's day. Only a slave could be reduced to such a humiliating task. Not a disciple. And yet John because he knows the true identity of Jesus, doesn't even feel worthy of that task. As low and humiliating as it is to care for another person's feet, John says, I'm not worthy. What's all the more amazing is that Jesus, God in the flesh, will end up washing his disciples' feet in John's gospel. So as great as John's humility is here, the humility of God will be shown to be greater. And that's what John's ministry is all about. He, he has a he's greater ministry. That's what his, his message, his whole ministry is about. It's to say, he's greater. The one coming after me. He's what you should be focused on. He's greater. That's what this mention of sandals is all about. It's a way of saying, don't look at me. Look at him. Don't follow me. Follow him. I don't know if there's a more powerful way to begin John's gospel than to start with John the Baptist saying, don't focus on me. Get ready. The king is coming. 
Church, Jesus is coming. In some ways, the message hasn't changed. He is coming again. And this time, when he appears, he's bringing his judgment and salvation in full. And it's forever. So we need to be ready all the more. Where's your focus today? And where will it be tomorrow morning? And what about on Friday afternoon? What does the extra spending in your budget say you're focused on? What does your news feed or favorite podcasts say you're focused on? What if we could watch a video of how you spent all your free time this last week or listen in on all your conversations or even your prayers? What would they say you're focused on? What about our home? And what we do as a family together. What does our discipleship of our kids say that we're focused on? What would they say? This is convicting, personally. And the reality is, it's it's quite easy to miss out on the king of kings in this world because we're far too easily pleased and distracted by lesser things. It's actually quite amazing how, how hard it can be to focus on the one who created all things and in whom all things hold together due to the various messages and pleasures of this world. And so rather than us shaping the world based on what we think about ourselves... It's the world that's actually shaping us. There's so much to live for, so many people to listen to, so much to experience, that we can easily begin to find our identity in what we have, what others say about us, or what we experience in the world or feel within ourselves. And as a result, we actually don't know who we are. And in turn... We don't know what we're doing. We're so distracted by such trivial matters and things that we can easily just pass through each day being busy or being entertained and maybe anxious and depressed as a result. But praise the Lord, it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to live like that because it's not about us. Life and light aren't found in the false saviors of the world or its fleeting pleasures, but in the person of Jesus, our creator. That's how John began his gospel. That's where our focus needs to be. Jesus gives meaning and purpose to life and to who we are. And so in him, we'll find our joy and peace and salvation So we need to be like John and listen to him here. Not only should we feel our unworthiness before Christ and a great thankfulness for his gracious love towards us, but we need to forget about ourselves and be all about him. I'm thankful for the weekly reminder that we get here as a church to do that. You know, I I as a pastor realize I, I need to be here, I have to be here. But I'm a Christian. 
before I'm a pastor. I, I can say that with integrity. And therefore, I can also say, I need the word. I, I need the church. I, I'm a member of this church because I, I need this for my life. And so I'm thankful that God commands us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together like this. Because without it, I drift. We drift. And man, praise God that the week is only seven days. You know, Eight feels like it might just be too much. It's so easy to make life about us. So church, let's come here and be focused on Christ. And that's, let's live out the church covenant with one another with a focus on Christ, not just one another. And so let's be in the word ourselves. Let's, let's listen to sermons. Let's pray scripture and enjoy the fellowship of one another and lean on each other for help to fight sin and see Jesus so that you can be who you're truly meant to be in him. You see, the testimony of such an important figure like John the Baptist shows us that much more important than being able to answer the question, who are you or who am I? Much more important is being able to answer, who is God? Who is Jesus? And at the outset of John's gospel, it's clarifying for his readers to know who John the Baptist is not. And emphatically declaring that Jesus is the Messiah and that's who we should focus on. Let's pray. Oh God, as we often do, we pray again. Capture our hearts and minds. Lord, we pray that our focus would be on Christ. That for our good and for his glory, we might live for him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.